Hey everybody. This year marks the 20th year that Drumline, the movie Drumline has come out. But did you know that Drumline was not the first movie about HBCU bands? Yep, that's right. There was a movie called Pay the Price that came out a few years before Drumline was released. And the person who created that movie, who wrote it, who directed it, was a man named Daryl Lasseter. Daryl marched for Alabama State's Mighty Marching Hornets. I've known him a long time. In fact, when Pay the Price came out, I interviewed him for my site, The Fifth Quarter. He has had a long and storied career in the media industry. And I think you're going to like his story about how he got into marching bands. And not only that, we talk about a lot of the history of HBCU bands, which is really educational when you think about it. So he has gone on to direct videos, most notably of the gospel artist Vicki Winans, who is one of my mom's favorites. Enjoy this talk that I have with Daryl Lasseter. All right. I am here with Daryl D. Lasseter, my, my buddy from a long time ago. <laughs> so Daryl is, he works in the media industry. And the way that we met was that he did a movie. He produced a movie called Pay the Price, which was based on his experience marching for Alabama State. So he's one of the Mighty Marching Hornets. And yeah, I'm really glad to have you here today, Daryl. I tell you, Christy, I thought about something um, either yesterday or this morning. And I said, wow, I, I first did an interview with you. It must have been 2000 because that, that's when we were going to the New York Film Festival that mm-hmm. summer, the summer of 2000. So that's been 22 years. Wow. Yeah. And you had the um, fifthquarter.com. So I I missed that. I think you should bring that back. (laughs) Well, thank you. I've I've heard that before. But, um, you know, right now I'm doing this podcast thing because it allows me to, you know, get to talk to people on a close basis just to find out their stories, because that's really what I'm into. I'm into like, you know, learning people's stories, especially, you know, if they marched in the HBCU band. So, Mm -hmm. okay. I'm really glad that you're doing this, though, because I feel like you're kind of a hard man to, to find or get in touch with. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, but, you know, but, but, but I do respond to all your text messages. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Yeah. Yep. All right. So, <laughs> that's good enough for me. So we'll, we'll get right into it. So, Daryl, why don't you start off by talking about, like, well, first of all, where's your hometown? I'm in Atlanta. I've been here 35 years now. Okay. And were you born born and raised in Alabama? I I was born in Birmingham, Alabama. Okay. Okay. So did you, and and I know that you are a trumpet player and a proud trumpet player. So was that the first instrument you learned? And if so, how old were you? Yes, it is the first instrument I learned. Uh, I was 11 years old when I started. Yeah. Sixth grade. Okay. So what got you interested in music? Like what made you want to pick up the trumpet to begin with? Did you grow up in a musical family? Well, those are two different things. Uh, What made me get in the band is not what introduced me to music. (laughs) What introduced me to music was uh, I had young parents and they played music every day, every way. And so I just can go all the way back to being like four or five and watching my mom take records to people's houses 
And back then, people would get into these arguments of whose record that this belongs to. And so my mother took a marker and she started writing DDL, which are my initials, and my, my brother and my initials on her records. And I used to take those records and read them. And I'd read everything where, you know, so I knew like Atlantic Records was on Broadway. I knew Motown was in Detroit. You know, I, I was always reading records and playing them on the record player. So I pretended to be a DJ when I was five years old. And so at that time we were living in New York City and my mom and dad were always going to the Apollo Theater to see the James Browns, Jackie Wilson's, the Motown artists and all that stuff. So I, I grew up loving music from that standpoint and then came the Jackson Five. So that really pushed me into being a real music lover. What made me want to be in the band was in the third grade, watching The Electric Company. That was the first episode of The Electric Company. We saw it, the very first one. Mm. And I saw a piece in there where they had the Ohio State University Marching Band. And the, they, they spelled Ohio in cursive. And the tuba player went around and dotted the I. That just blew me away. And so in the third grade, I said, I want to be in a college marching band. It was never about just playing a trumpet. It was more so to get to a college band. But I knew I had to be in the middle school. I knew I had to be in a high school band. But I really just wanted to be in a college band because I saw them. I saw that. And the next band I saw was uh, USC. So it wasn't even an HBCU that I saw first. I didn't know what that even meant then. It was Ohio State University, which was a huge band. And then I saw USC. That is very cool because, you know, I've done about 20, well, I think it's been over 30 of these interviews now with different people. And I think you were one of the first, if not the first person to say that they saw a PWI band first. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, because, yeah, that's what I saw. And um, like I said, Ohio State's band was huge. And mm -hmm. then USC, they would march in with these Roman empire uniforms on and riding horses and throwing stakes down in the ground and, 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 and the thing about those two schools were they had two big huge football teams with a bunch of Heisman Trophy winners so those are big programs so those were the first bands I saw uh now the first H, the first band I saw in person was actually a game my my dad took me and my brother to it was uh, Alabama A&M and Miles College. This was in Birmingham. Okay. And yeah, and a guy named John Stallworth played for the Pittsburgh Steelers was playing with Alabama AM at the time. Well, I still didn't think of anything special about an HBCU band at that time. Uh, it didn't really hit me until I was in high school. My brother and I went to see the Magic City Classic. That's their school again, Alabama AM, and then my school but you know i wasn't concerned with either of those schools at the time i just wanted to go see because everybody was talking about the classic well i saw those bands my brother and i went and sat on the a m side because we, I, I preferred the maroon and white color over the black and gold color really you couldn't have told me at that <laughs> moment that i would be an asu along it just didn't even it wasn't there and so when I did decide to go to Alabama State, and I had two cousins who was in our band, no one told me what I had to go through. I just thought, if you could play your instrument, you were good. And boy, was I shocked. <laughs> okay, let, let's let's pause right there for a second. I'm, okay. I'm going to tease them a bit. A bit. So, okay. all right, so let's go back to your... So, you know, you're in middle school and I know that you said that you, you have musical parents that influenced you and, and all that good stuff. 
Right. But um, so what made you want to pick trumpet? Um, because my mom ultimately decided that or suggested that all I knew I wanted to play was a tuba because I saw a guy in the band playing a tuba, walking down the street, playing the Alka-Seltzer plop, plop, fizz, fizz, oh, what a relief it is song he's playing on his tuba. Mm-hmm. And girls were just following him down the street. I said, oh, my God, that is so cool. I want to do that. But then the school, the school didn't have any more tubas. So I told my mom I wanted to be in a band. I called her at her job. Uh, I first said I wanted to play drums. She said that was going to get on her nerves, be too loud. So the drums were out. I said, then what about the black thing? I didn't know what it was called. She said a clarinet. She said, oh, well, I tried to do that. That's mostly for girls. I said, I'm definitely not doing that. So she said, go to my band room and ask my, ask my band teacher, what I could play. Only thing I knew was that the, the what was called the long thing. It was ultimately a, a trombone. But my band director said, your arms are too short to reach the sixth and seventh position. It's going to probably take you a while. I was disappointed again. That's when my mom said, well, why don't you play the thing that, that uh, Louis Armstrong played? I didn't know who Louis Armstrong was. Huh. <laughs> so she said it was a trumpet. I went to my school and I looked my band director had a picture of a famous person playing all these instruments. So for a trumpet, she had Miles Davis. I said, that's what a trumpet is? I like that. I just thought it was called a horn. That's how I got to play a trumpet. Yeah, my parents told me they were going to get me one for Christmas. It, that didn't happen. So it was two weeks later, January 11th. That's when my trumpet came. You remember the exact day? And I'll never forget. It was, it was the day after my dad's birthday. It was January 10th. So, yeah, I got it the very next day. I never forgot. January, in fact, it was January 11, 1975. That's awesome. Yes. So, in high school, mm-hmm. did you march in a high-stepping band or was it no, core style? No, it was core style. And that, Christy, mm-hmm. let me tell you now, I ended up in, end up at the end of the, my senior year playing second chair. I was, I, was a first, I, was, I was a first trumpet player from 10th grade on. And I never, I never ever played third. I mean, never played, never ever played second. I played third as a freshman. I went straight to a first as a sophomore. I never ever played second. So my band was a very, very core style band. We were like 50, 50, 50% black, 50% white, but the band directors were white. And most of the music we played was white. So when I got to Alabama State, they thought there was no way I would make that band because I had come from a core style band. There'd only been one other guy in our high school band that had ever made Alabama State's band. So they thought I didn't have a chance. Wow. And I proved them wrong. That, <laughs> that's interesting. Okay, so you said the, the population of your high school band was 50% Black, 50% White, but only one other person had made it to Alabama State? Had any of them yeah. gone to like Alabama A&M or any? They, like- they, they did. A lot of them had gone to Alabama A&M. A lot of them had gone to Tennessee State. And Tuskegee seemed to be the other school that a lot of people were going to. And it's funny because Alabama State for a long time was considered a teacher's college. And so if you wanted to be a band director or a music teacher as at an HBCU, you chose Alabama State over Tuskegee, which is more of an engineering school, or Alabama A&M, which was more agriculture and that kind of thing. So, But the kids living in Birmingham felt like Huntsville was closer than Montgomery. Mm, okay okay yeah. and again i think it was the color thing because i was struck i was stuck with that too the maroon and white looked better than black and gold so i was leading that way too so you were leading that way so what yeah. made you what made you switch what made you choose? Well, listen i had no idea of what it took to be in and in, in, to get in a college i actually thought because i had uh 
people, I knew people who had gone on to the NFL. And so I thought a scout would just show up and send you to a school like they do in sports. So I, I my whole senior year, I'm, I'm waiting for the scout to come up and find me. When I was a freshman and a sophomore in high school, a lot of the white guys were telling us they were going to Alabama, they were going to Auburn. And I thought they were going because scouts were coming to get them. I didn't know they were applying. Mm -hmm. So late into my senior year, like around Christmas, everybody was coming back saying, I got a letter, I got a letter. I didn't know what that meant. Ultimately, I went to my counselor who was an ASU alum. She said, I can get you into my school. And that's how it happened. She showed me what to do. And yeah, and I wrote a letter. I hand wrote it because I didn't know how to type. We didn't have typewriters and computers. So I hand wrote a letter and got accepted. And then my, my mom sat there for hours and helped me get grants and money to go. And I the friend I'm telling you about who, who was from my high school who went, who went to Alabama State, that's who I rode to school with. His name was Ricardo Davis. He played trumpet as well. That's how I got to Alabama State. That is crazy. I but I love it though. I, I love it because, you know, I, I work, I, I'm not a guidance counselor, but I do career advising. Mm -hmm. And it's you, you know, you can't underestimate the influence that people in those positions have. I mean, that that oh, person yeah. just basically helped you choose your school. She changed my life. And I had and I was under the gun because he we had just come back from Christmas. It's the first week of January. And by then, it's almost late to be applying for school. You know, today, you can press a button and apply for 60 scholarships. Well, I didn't even, you know, I didn't know anybody who was getting scholarships those ways. So, yeah, she told me, she gave me my school address. And to this day, that was 1981, it was January of 1981. Do you know I can still tell you the address? 915 South Jackson Street, Montgomery, Alabama, 36195. I still know that. So did you know what you wanted to major in when you were in school? Or did you think you wanted to major in a certain thing? Now, see, that goes back to the electric company again, because that was my reason for being in a marching band. Well, that's also the reason what made me wanted to major in communication. That was my major. I used to see Morgan Freeman. I didn't know who Morgan Freeman was then. But those 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 episodes with he and the black lady and she would say, roll them, cut, action. Let's do it again. But I said, I want to do that. And I knew it was something in television and film and all that stuff. So the electric company is the reason I wanted to be on a college band and the reason I wanted to major in communication. So I thank those people at the electric company. That was my guide in the third grade. Mm, that's cool. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about your, your crab year. Or <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, I arrived in a, in a uh, well, my friend who, who I was telling you about from high school, he and I rode a Greyhound bus to school. When we got there, we stopped at the great the Greyhound bus station, the same one where they beat up all the black people during the Freedom Ride. This was exactly 20 years early. That happened in 61. Here I am 20 years later at the same bus station. And so we get in the taxi. The man said, um, oh, you here for the band? The, the taxi driver I said, yeah. He said, ooh, I hear they practice harder than the football team. That's the And, and, and I was just like, okay 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 so uh i had a cousin who was in the band and when he found out i was going like a month before i went he said boy they're gonna kill you down there well i didn't know what that meant so anyway we, we we get to school and um our first practice i got to school on sunday afternoon first practice was at 4 30 a.m and they had already mailed us the stuff to tell us this christy i'm thinking like a lot of us as we used to call it color people time and all that 
So all of us are standing up in the dorm. We're looking at upperclassmen out there at almost midnight going, there's no way in the world they're going to be up at no 4.30. So let's just chill. Honey, 4.30, people came knocking on those doors, waking us up, and we didn't even get to go brush our teeth, wipe our face, nothing. It was just straight, put your T-shirt, shorts on, boom, 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 run down the hall, and we just ran straight all the way across campus to the practice field, nonstop, 4.30 in the morning. You couldn't hear anything but us and the crickets. There was no, campus had closed because there was no, summer school was over. So it was us, the cheerleaders, and the football team, and the security mm-hmm. department, that was it. And so there I was, I was 17, I was still 5'8", 135 pounds. So I was little and they found out I went to a core style school. So they didn't think I was gonna make it, I was small. And they just thought I didn't have the, the the physical capacity to make it or the mental capacity either. But that first day was a monster. Our last practice, we got back in the dorm at almost midnight from 4.30 in the morning to midnight. I think we had two water breaks in the whole day. It was, we saw 200 people quit on the first not just the first day, but the first practice. They made us run around the track twice in combat boots before we eat breakfast, before the sun even came up. You know, we're running, we're singing songs, we're doing push-ups and jumping jacks and all this stuff. And I just saw people just run straight out the gate. And it was terrifying to 17-year-olds who just left their parents hours ago. And that was our introduction to college. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I have so many thoughts about this. Well, first off, it's like you're re, you know, you're reenacting pay the price. <laughs> that's I what happened. Those scenes in the movies that you're talking mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> ironically, a lot of your experience was similar to mine. Now, I would tell you, I was not out there from 4:30 to midnight, but I was out there from five to 10-ish, mm-hmm. 5 a.m. to 10 p.m. ish. We, you know, we had water breaks, not a whole bunch of water breaks, but more than two, but (laughs) you know, they, they weren't, there weren't a lot of of water breaks and just practicing all day. We definitely used combat boots. I don't know if they still do that now, Mm -hmm. but I remember having to go to the, um, my mom took me to the army Navy surplus store Uh and got, and got me the combat boots. And I I did that on my own. Oh, I, I, I walked to the surplus store and bought those combat boots and then military shoes to march in the game. But so, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember I tried to get ready. So, you know, I went to I, I marched in a course style band, too. And I tried to to get ready by running around my neighborhood in the combat boots. So I tried to do that before my first camp. But it's still I mean, you can do whatever, but it's not going to fully prepare you for what that that band camp is like that first one. Nothing does. I mean, nothing does. I was, I, I never, I didn't, I didn't put my boots on at all until we got there. But I was always jogging. I was always playing football and baseball and basketball in the summer and in, in the projects we lived in. I, I had a, a, a job cleaning up a restaurant and I used to jog up there. So I was always trying to stay in shape. I thought that was all you needed. Well, nothing can prepare you for running in those boots and 95 degree temperature. There's no shade. We were out there on that field somebody screaming at you stand up straight hold your head up stop blinking your eyes hold your head up high this is attention you know all that stuff that you do so i forget you at north carolina a&t right mm-hmm. 
Okay. We never marched against them. Were they in the MEAC when you were there? Yes, they were. I've never seen North Carolina A&T's band. I never have. I okay. saw Howard twice. Uh, I have a niece in Howard's band uh, right now. But the see, we just didn't play those schools like Morgan State and Virginia Union and all. My my experiences were Alabama, Tennessee, Florida, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas and Arkansas. Those because we were in the SWAC, the Southwestern Athletic Conference. So those were the schools we played. When I played Florida, we went, we marched against Florida and It was in Atlanta for the Freedom Bowl. And then we, we finally met with a South Carolina school, South Carolina State. All of us were in that Freedom Bowl. We marched against Grambling in Atlanta. So we stayed more South and Southwest. But yeah, that pre, we call it pre-drill. We didn't call it summer band camp. Pre-drill was two weeks. The first week was just us, the freshmen, we called them, they called us crabs. So it was just us, section leaders and drum majors. Then that second week, all the upperclassmen came back. That's when you, if you thought you were terrorized that first week, when, when, when the fools came, mm-hmm. you know, that's what I, especially those who had just crabbed the year before, they called them neophytes or they were out for blood. They ran us, they got us in shape, they whipped us in shape. And when I mean a couple of water breaks, that's what it was. Now we we had a guy that was making Gatorade with some kind of powder and water in a big old barrel like a trash can. Mm-hmm. And we would go do that maybe once or twice too. But there weren't many breaks. You, you had your breakfast, your lunch and dinner. And then it, when you weren't doing full band practice, you had what's called sections. So it would just be my section. And we will, we will practice in the band room, us, but the trombones would be behind the library. The drummers would be on the dining hall steps. The, I don't know where the saxophone, I don't know where any of those other people were, but because that's all that's on campus, you can hear us practicing. You know, so you can hear the tubas blasting off the library wall or the trombone blasting off the dorm steps or whatever. You can hear that around campus because there's nobody there but us. But I tell you, I never played harder or longer than I did in my first three weeks of the marching man. And I was, I think my best year ever was my freshman year. I was in the best shape of my life. I had more stamina. Now I became a much more mature player two and three years down the road, my fourth year in the band. But I think I could never be what I was at 18. That was the apex. Do you know, (laughs) this is so funny to me because so much of what you're saying is similar to my experience, different schools, different time, but so much of what you're saying is um, similar. And I'm so glad that you are painting the picture to say, this is what it was like, because hopefully, you know, somebody listening to this will be like, oh, wow, it was really like this. I guarantee it was definitely like like what Daryl was saying. Yeah. Did you find it hard to, like, because you were talking about the physical aspect of it. Did you find it hard to march and play at the same time? Like marching, you know, high-stepping and playing? Because that's, I'll tell you personally, that was weird to get my body used to having to play and high-stepping at the same time, which, of course, is different from core style. Mm -hmm. No, it wasn't as hard as people thought it would be for me because I was such a dancer in high school. So at all the parties, I was the one who outdanced everybody. Uh, I would go to skating rinks and we would skate backwards and jump up and down. And my brother and I were like daredevils. We used to jump off top of the house. We used to ride our bicycles backwards. I mean, we did all that physical stuff. So I was used to 
doing multiple things physically. Uh, in terms of dancing, it, it, it was just like playing an instrument. I loved anything dealing with music. So that wasn't the difficult part. To me, the difficult part was being in the sun and not having a baseball cap on or sunglasses yeah. or not being able to wipe the sweat or not being able to scratch when you're itching or <laughs> those things were most more difficult to me i love playing my horn i love being out there with the guys the camaraderie i love learning the dance routines the drills were just as hard as the dance routine for us for me you know, having, we, we were making stars and, and we, we, because we were Alabama State University, we would make, we would make an ASU on the field and then flip it around and make it USA and play the Star Spangled Banner. So we would do a pregame, a halftime, and then a postgame. Now that will wear you out. And don't let it be a classic where you had to do a parade before. So see, that's what gets you. That halftime is no joke. You know, the, the 10, 12 hours of practice is not nearly as brutal as the 10 minute halftime show. Cause you're in that heavy uniform with that hat on, you sweat like a dog. You don't, you only get one chance wool. and you're trying to please tens of thousands of people. The uniform is wool. Yeah, uniform <laughs> that is wool. always used to kill me. Yeah, wool. Yeah, yeah. In August. Now your first game is like the last week of August or the first week of September. It's still hot in the South all the way to about the middle of October. Mm -hmm. Then when then it flips on you. So our last game was always Thanksgiving Day. Now, in the five years I was in the band, one year was 75 degrees. The next year was 25 degrees. One year was pouring down raining. The next year was sick. It was never the same. So you never knew if you were going to get a warm Thanksgiving or a freezing Thanksgiving. And the Magic City Classic was the same way. That was our biggest game. And we played them in Birmingham. We played Alabama and even though our biggest rival was Tuskegee, which we always played on Thanksgiving. That's the first classic, by the way. Well, I, we love to say that because we started the classics. You're the right. Turkey Day, the Turkey Day Classic goes back to 1927. So that was us. We did that. So the Magic City Classic is like the third, I think. It started in the 1940s. But in, but in Alabama, it's the biggest because it was the biggest college stadium, which was Legion Field. We put 70,000 people in that stadium to see us, not the football team, to see us. And so... I marched in those things and we had a parade every year before and we'd have a race back after eating, get to do that pregame. And it's, it's you know, it's maybe 20,000 people in the stands you're doing that pregame. Then come halftime and everybody stop. It's the showtime. You know, this is it. We're marching on this AstroTurf in Legion Field, which is different from grass. Well, when we finished with that now, we had to do a postgame. But now that doesn't count for you playing every time the team scores. You're playing the Star Spangled Banner. You're playing against each other. So you're worn out when you come off that field. You got to start playing again. I don't, think, I don't think folks know how tiring that is. Now you're reaching. Yeah. yeah, you're sweating. You're hot. Even though you're 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, it is such a physical, demanding thing to go out. It's, it's mental, too, because you don't want to make a mistake. You have to memorize all these routines, all these steps. And remember, we're in HBCU, so we're learning our music. We play, you have to memorize all these songs you play, all these songs. Everything we play, the moment a drum major calls out that song, you had to know it. And so knowing all the songs, knowing all the steps, knowing all the routines, routines, knowing where you had to be on the field. I was on the front line during the dance community, so there's nobody in front of me to hide me. All I see is the crowd. 
Right. So, you know, so you really want, when that camera is shooting the band, that first line better be, better be hopping. So we pride ourselves, uh, Christy, on that front line always being together. And when we turned it around for the parade, we made sure as the section leaders, we always kept our lines straight. That was what we drilled ourselves on. So it was great. I, the best five years of my life. And who was your director at the time? The band director was Dr. Lyle. We called him Prof. Thomas, Thomas E. Lyle. He was a um, Tennessee State alum. He marched in Tennessee State's band in the 40s. Wow, 40s. in the 40s. Mm, 40s and 50s. I think you told me he finished at Parker High School in 1946. So he might not have even made it to the 50s. I think it was just the late 40s. Mm. But you know what else? I'm going to tell you something else. And I learned this. I, didn't, I did some research. My band director actually was an assistant at Florida a and in the 50s before he went to Alabama State. And a lot of those guys came from down there. But did you know this? That even Dr. Foster, who was the baddest band director there was back in those days at Florida a and Do you know a lot of them went to the Big Ten schools? And got the, and got their masters and PhDs, so they were absolutely at, yeah. They went to Ohio State. They went to Michigan. Well, see, they couldn't go to the schools in the South, and the HBCUs weren't offering master programs in the fifties and sixties. So they couldn't go to Alabama, Auburn, or LSU, or you know, University of Tennessee. So they had to go up north to the Indianas and Michigan State. Well, that's where they learned that discipline. Those Michigan bands and Ohio State bands, they had as much discipline to, as we did. They didn't dance as much, but remember they're playing in the Supreme Cold in December, November, and December. So, if you want to know how some of the history started, go back and look at some of those bands and the military bands too. That's where we got that precision and discipline from. People look at us as just a band that dances. No, we were about discipline. Mm-hmm. We were about discipline, organization, preparation, and style. So I definitely knew about those Big Ten bands. Mm-hmm. Um, and even with my parents, my mom told me that A&T's uniform in the 60s, they had these cross belts. I, I don't know how to describe it, but they were like belts that kind of cross over your midsection. And she mm-hmm. said that they got that from the University of Michigan because mm-hmm. um, their director was a, a Michigan grad. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I definitely know about the influence and in the mm-hmm. Navy band that... Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I wrote about it in that book. So, what, what, and look, and, and even what we call, what's it called? Your, your, your facial commands and all that stuff. If you think about it, the military bands, the things we did in the HBCU band, every band stands at attention. Every band has a command called at ease. Every band has a dress right or whatever to space yourself out. You all mark time, mark time. You all forward march, you all backward march. There's a there's a there's there's only so many steps per five yards on a football field. So ours was eight to five. That's why I called it eight to five. So those things came from the military. The the 360 turns, the 180 turns, the 270 marks, those things were all military driven. Left flank, right flank, 270, about face. You see them, those that's where those things came from. Now, we use them in our band, and they're still saying that every band gets called to attention by a drum major's whistle, and somebody's going to say attention some kind of way. Because how else do you pull 20 or 200 people to get quiet? You're not walking around the band saying, be quiet. That's not how a marching band gets quiet. You get quiet with a, with a drum major whistle mm-hmm. and an attention command. And okay. that's, how, that's how the drills were in the military. And that's how they did in, in, in those Big Ten schools. But now what the Big Ten schools don't have that the HBCUs do have, 
is that people go to our games mostly to see us. Whereas in the Big Ten, it is about football. And people go get water and drinks at halftime. Well, in HBCU, you know, people come out the concession stand at halftime and stop in their tracks. Oh, you know what? I have a funny story. So um, I think it was my freshman or sophomore year. A&T played Western Carolina. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Western Carolina. And so like... Oh, it's so interesting how how folks that aren't exposed to HBCU bands, how how they'll treat you in Mm -hmm. a good way. So Mm -hmm. I was using the restroom. I came out the restroom and was washing my hands. (laughs) And this mother and her daughter, her daughter was like five or six years old, came up to me while I was washing my hands in, because of course I was in uniform, and said, this is the best band I've ever seen in my life. Y'all yeah. are awesome. You all yeah. are incredible. Mm-hmm. Oh, listen, I, I, I know what that's like. Every year we play a, a, a non-HBCU school. And so we played Jacksonville State University. They came to Montgomery with 350 people in their band. That's the biggest band we had ever seen. They stood over there on the other side. They were just playing so soft. We were just like, come on, y'all have to have more power than that. And all of a sudden they crank that thing up and sound like a tornado over there. But we saw them and they they were just in awe of us because they had already heard about the black college marching bands and they wanted to see us. And we saw them, they were just like, oh, you guys, high step, you you guys practice. We, we practice like two hours a day. You practice all day. How do you get to do that? They, and they were just blown away. Now they were sitting there reading their music they didn't learn any of that stuff. They just did a couple of routines and watched us. You know, they were just in awe of us. Now, I've only been in awe of one HBCU band. That was only because I saw them after they performed against us. But I was never, we were never scared of any band. But I tell you, when we played Southern University, mm-hmm. Baton Rouge, they came to our campus. And I would, that's the only band I would concede halftime performance. I think we were as good or better than anybody else. Southern was a juggernaut. And so, ooh, I don't know if you ever saw them back in the day. They were something else. And we went to Daytona Beach to march against Bethune-Cookman my junior year. Mm-hmm. Bethune-Cookman, we just thought was a joke. Okay, 10, 15 years later, I saw them here in Atlanta. And I said, what happened? That band was ridiculously great. <laughs> they, they just they elevated i give them i give you credit where it's due they elevated and they were right there with florida and m you know we went up against grambling i was always a dream of mine in high school because mm-hmm. i saw them on commercials you know grambling had a movie about their football team so grambling was always marketed differently than everybody else and then florida and m was right behind them so those were the two schools i, I measured myself up against and i could play as good as any of those guys when, when we would sit there we had, I took my trumpet section. We played with Gramlin's trumpet section. I was like, we, we're better than any of them. I, I didn't feel second to any of those guys except Southern. I, I don't think Southern can outplay us. Their band just had more style and creativity. They were just a little bit, a little more pizzazz to their, to their mm-hmm. halftime show. But um, now we've, we've run folks off the field too. We had Jackson State wanting to fight us twice down at their school, Jackson State. I mean, it was crazy. Tennessee State, we, we had to fight. Then we had to stop playing them. That's how crazy it was at Tennessee State. Alabama a m that was always your rival. So it wasn't just the marching band. It was the basketball. It was baseball. It could be anything. 
Alabama and it was just always our Alabama Auburn, you know. So in Tuskegee, we had many fights with them too. It was all in love, but it was always in competition, you know. Okay, so let's let's fast forward a bit. So I, I'm assuming you continued your communications major, and that's what you graduated with, correct? I did, correct. Okay, okay. So let's talk about pay the price, because you know, people. Oh gosh, I wish I could just educate folks and let them know, hey, look, Drumline was not the first HBCU band movie now. Nope. <laughs> well, that Tell me about story, that process. That story was so crazy. Um, yeah, I did my movie three years before they did. They ended up using the same bands I used, the same, some of the same cast members, same music, uh, some of the same actors. Oh my God, so much stuff that I ended up filing a lawsuit against the studio, 20th Century Fox on that. But I chose pay the price because when I was in school, we used to sit around and I said, you know, no one will ever believe what we're going through to do this. They just see us on Saturday for 10 minutes and just go, ah, well, they just put together a nice show. They have no idea the sweat and the tears that we went through to get this. So I said, no one would believe this. Somebody need to make a movie about this. I just said that and just just talking. Years later, when Spike Lee took off and he had made school days, I wrote Spike and asked him, I said, you, you need to do a movie about Black college marching bands. No one had ever done it. What well, took me years, took me eight years to raise the money to do it myself. So I did it. I shot it at, um, let's say, 90% of it was shot at Clark Atlanta University. The other 10% was at Mars Brown. Um, and that's the other thing. Drumline shot it in the same places I shot my movie. Same stadiums, the whole deal. Well, when I finished Pay the Price, uh, we went on to win the film festival in New York, New York International Film Festival. I came in first place. Uh, it, I had some problems with the person that financed the film for me, and so it held us up on distribution. Meanwhile, Cedric Young, who was the band director at Clark Atlanta, was my assistant section leader in college. Like I, I crabbed him. I made him. And he called me on the down low, as they say. He said, man, um, Dallas Austin and these guys are coming over. They're going to they gonna make movies just like yours. Do you want to come over here and see it? I said, no, because I got a feeling it's going to be like mine. And I didn't want anyone saying they saw me on campus and I approved it. So I stayed away from that. And I just wanted to wait till it came out. And I saw how many scenes were similar. You know, like, like there's a scene that Devin's character in Drumline when he's standing there and he's wearing the jewelry on the first day and they take his jewelry off. Well, that's what happened to me. You know, that's, I don't know, well, I could say I know what they got it from, they got it from my movie, but that's something I did. And I only did that because when I was in high school, our school was purple and white. So I used to wear purple and white socks, purple and white wristbands, purple and white t-shirts, like a school pride thing. So when I got to college, I thought I would do the same thing, wear black and gold, wear my, I had a gold watch and all that. Well, I was 10 minutes late for the first orientation. Well, when, in the first 10 minutes, that was one of the things they said, do not wear any black and gold when, and don't wear jewelry. So I missed that. Mm -hmm. So when we're lined up learning the songs, the drum majors came over, took my jewelry and all that stuff, which is the same thing I put in my movie. Then I see it in Drumline. That's the same thing happens to Devin. So I'm like, okay, where did you get that from? Because I can tell you where I got it from. And there's people I march with can tell you that that happened to me. Okay, where right. did it happen for you? So we get into this long thing about Dallas Austin, and we all we all know I know that Dallas didn't go to college, so he didn't march in a black. If he didn't go to college, he didn't march in a college band. 
So when everybody would let him get on these interview shows and he'd say, oh, it's based on a true story and it's based on my story, no one would ever ask, but what band were you in? No one would ever ask him that. Because that's going to tell the story. Because if you say what band you were in, you're going to have to then say what years you were in the band. Yep. Somebody's going to say, no, sir, you were not. Mm-hmm. There's not a person that marched in my band from 81 to 85 that can tell you I wasn't there. Plus, right. I have pictures of me in the band. Single pictures, group pictures, section pictures. I won every award you can win in the band. There's nobody can dispute me being in the band. Okay, well, now you prove that you were in a black college marching band. Just prove that to me. And where did you get this from? I don't have to, I can easily prove where my story came from. Where did yours? So here's another scene that Devin has the afro and have to cut his hair. We did that same thing. So, so again, I can. Did I you can, have the question mark shirt? We didn't. Now that came later. We didn't do that. We just had to wear white t-shirts. And the other thing we didn't have to do, we didn't have to wear black shorts. We just had to wear shorts. But but in pay the price, I made them all wear black shorts. That was just a financial thing because when I sent my wardrobe person to Walmart, she said, well, it was easier to just buy everybody black shorts and just get everybody different shorts. That's where that came from. Now, they why did they do it? I don't know. But that's why I did. We just had to wear shorts. We had to wear black combat boots and white T-shirts. And we call crabs and all that thing. But see, we know when we saw Dallas Austin's first script, it was about a high school band, which you know is totally different from a college band. And here's the thing, you know, people now hear the term drumline. I don't know what they did at A&T where you went, but in my school, we didn't call it a drumline. We just call it the percussion section. I never even heard the term drumline until that movie came out. I'm trying to think. We just call we just call them cold steel. Like oh, okay. Yeah, I'm thinking it's just cold steel. And I was, with, I was with the percussion session. And I've, I've talked to people who went to Grambling, Tennessee State, Florida a and just many schools. Where you, did you all call your percussion section the drum line? None of them said that. So see, what happens was, I believe, that when Dallas was in a high school band, maybe they said that, because that really was like a high school term. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you make the movie and, and most of the masses don't know that that was not something we used, they don't know. So now everybody goes around, we got a drum line, we got a drum line. Nobody was even saying that before their movie because it was such like a high school term. So, you know, but hey, mm-hmm. I can go on and on with that process. So, you know, I didn't have the $20 million they had to make that movie. I had $200,000. So, of course, mine wasn't going to be as glitz and glamorous as theirs. Well, I, I mean, I saw, of course, I've seen both. And I was like, oh, yeah, there's lots of similarities there. And if Dallas Austin did not march for a college band, mm-hmm. I, I find it pretty hard to replicate, like, for him to claim that it's his story. But I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I actually, without getting into a whole lot of crazy stuff, and I don't care if anybody tries to sue me because everything I'm saying is factual. So you can, you, if you want to go down that road, then we can, we can open up cases and you, let's do it. But I actually took my script over here to his studio in 1994. Mm. So that's a fact, too. And that's been proven by forensic teams. So, you know, I don't have to hide and dance around any of this stuff. I can tell you the straight up truth about all of it. But your podcast would be eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I know that you've done a lot of like video production work. I remember when the Vicki Winans video that you did with, with Alabama State's band in it. I remember, I remember 
premiering it. I think we premiered it on on the fifth quarter. And my mom, like Vicky Winans, is one of my mom's absolute favorites. And so mm-hmm. she loved that video. <laughs> yeah, I, I get a lot of people asking me how did that all come about. And here's how it came about. Vicky called me. What what prior to that, I had done easily 10 videos on her at this time, by this time. Um, so it was nothing for her to call. So let's do another one. Cause that's all she was just say, Hey baby, let's do another. We had done so many us doing another one was like, you know, tying your shoes. We were doing that so much. So she said, well, this time I want to do, um, I want to do something with a marching band and I want to be in a, I want to be in a majorette uniform. Well, I really thought she meant a majorette, but she really meant a drum major uniform. Found that out later. So she, we were trying to do it just before Christmas or around Christmas time. And I said, Vicky, it's going to be hard to find a, a black college marching band around Christmas. So, and I figured, you know, we were doing so many in Atlanta. I didn't want to go back down the Clark Atlanta road again because I used them for my band. I didn't want to do Mars Brown. Spellman doesn't have a marching band and Morehouse is a trip. So, where, you know, <laughs> so where else do you go? And so people start saying, well, go down to Fort Valley and go down to Albany State and this, that, and the other because those schools are in Georgia. But it takes me just as long to drive to Albany State as it does to Montgomery. So I said, well, I might as well go with my own school. I have a better shot and a quicker turnaround calling my band director, not my band director, he had retired, but I could call that band director who knew me and he was personal. I can call him at home. That's much faster than waiting for a school to come back and you got to send a memo, get it approved through the, the school board. And all. I, all I did was call my band director. He said, okay, fine. Send me the song. We'll work out something. That was much easier than going through a Clark and a Morris Brown, which that's a whole lot of stuff you have to deal with. Mm-hmm. So I called down there. They said, yeah, let's do it. We shot that in the first week of January coming out of the Christmas break is when we did that video. So it was cold out there. So when you see those girls dancing out there in their Stingette uniform, we call them our girls Stingettes. That's January. But again, mm-hmm. that's how they, you know, they had just performed in November. And it was cold, too. They're used to that. So it was right. sunny, but it was freezing cold out there. So that's how we ended up doing it. That car you see in there, that Rolls Royce, that was Vicky's own. That was her personal car. She had it shipped in. I saw the guy driving in from North Carolina on a, a, a some kind of towing thing or whatever. But that was really her car. We shot it on the same field that I practiced on, which is called Hornet Stadium. That's where I saw people quitting on that first day. That's the same field we shot the video on. Well, that's full circle. Full circle, exactly. <laughs> Well, so, so so, what are you up to now? What's going on with you now? I'm still working in media. I'm still writing scripts. I'm still writing music. I'm, I'm not playing as much as I used to, but, but one day I will. Will I ever be what I was at 18, 19, 20? No. I could be good as I was then for 10 minutes. But, you know, back then I can do it for 10 hours. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I would, I, you know what I've never done? Since I left school, I have never gone back on the first day of pre-drill. And every year I keep saying, I'm going to go back. I've been saying this since 1986. Okay, so what's stopping you? Because it's it's July, so. Well, okay, I finally, well, the first few years out of school, I was working at a radio station. And I couldn't leave because I was the morning show guy. So I couldn't go. Then I became the manager. And then when I went to TV, I was another manager again. and, And it was always hard to get off in August and go do that. So two years ago, I said, finally, I'm going to do it. But then that was COVID. 
Then last year I was going to go and I think my son had a football practice or, or something. I had to go to that. So I'm trying my best this year. I want to be, I'm talking about the 430 practice. That's what I'm talking about. The very first Monday morning, 430 practice. I've only done that the five years I was in the band. I've always wanted to go back. And it's, you know, it's different now. These kids aren't as tough as we were. I was going to say, are they still having 430 practices? Because you know these students now, man. Yeah. They on some other stuff. <laughs> yeah, some other stuff. So it's probably, well, that's too early. The sun hasn't come up. Let's just do it at seven and let every everybody get the same trophy and everybody makes a B. And this is too hard. Why do we have to go through all of that? Then mm. when they don't go through all that and then go step out there on that field for a game, they're falling out because they're not in shape. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, so the same parents that will cry and holler about this is too hard when your child is out there suffering, they can't breathe and about to die out on that field because you weren't practicing in August. Or if Alabama State puts out a mediocre product that there year, there's that too. There's that too. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a price to be paid to get that great performance you see. Nobody, I mean, those great concerts Michael Jackson used to do in the 80s, people forget they, they practiced for months before they got to that. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you know, nobody just wakes up on a Friday and come up with a routine and there it is for Saturday. Well, HBCU band folks, we we know that Michael Jackson practiced all that oh, time. Oh, yeah, we know. Yeah, yeah, because we know how much we know how much we were putting in for our little show. Ten minutes. Mm-hmm. He's doing two-hour shows, or, you know, back then. So, mm-hmm. we, know, we know the effort it takes, you know, and I'm still watching Ohio State. They took a Michael Jackson and had him moonwalking down the field. Yep. I mean, yep. just crazy stuff that they're doing. I don't know how they're doing this stuff, but, I, you know, the stuff that we do, we impress them too. Do you have any, like, words of wisdom? Or is there anything on your heart that you would like to get across? Because, you know, it's going to be people that's listening to this. They might have marched in the HBCU band. They might not. They might just be a fan. You know, with your vast experiences and things like that, do you have any advice or maybe things that you take with you day to day that you learn in the band? Yeah, I take things to the, yeah, this, this day. And I have advice to the discipline of things, you know, having to stand in a line, we will practice sometimes 10 minutes straight, just standing at attention. Because if you can't stand at attention, you don't have discipline in your band. You just don't. When the whole thing about one band, one sound, means that you look alike, sound alike, and you act alike. And you're brothers and sisters forever. When you put that uniform on, there's a uniformity too. That's why it's called a uniform. So there's a united front that you're supposed to have. That's why we used to walk around and inspect each other's shoes, make sure our gloves were clean, no dirty brown, dingy gloves. We, we took care of each other, you know, and I learned that then take care of your brother. So when I'm working on a project, it's about a team. That's what I learned about the marching band. I still take that up on today. You can accomplish more if there's a team. Now, it's always going to be a leader and a follower. And one day you're the leader, maybe you're the follower or whatever. But that camaraderie of dozens of people coming together for one goal is a great thing. Uh, In terms of the advice, I would tell people, Practice as much as you can. I don't make the band your life because you're still in school to get your education. Uh, the band is going to always be fun. That's why pre-drill for us was always before classes started. So people mm-hmm. hear me, when they hear you say, we were out there from 4.30 to midnight, they think you're doing that when school started. No, no, no. no. 
Now, when, when school started, we had a four o'clock practice to six. We ate and we went back out there from seven to nine. Occasionally we had sections, but it was an evening thing. In the daytime, you were going to classes. So if they're in, if in my thinking, well, that's all they do. No, that's not. Those three weeks before school started, yeah, that was all you did. That's about all the energy you had to do was eat, sleep, and, and band. So I would tell people, practice as much as you can. Be the best that you can. And don't let people frighten you as to think, oh, it's the end of the world. It's so hard. I can't. There's thousands, tens of thousands of people who've done it. So if it, that's why I didn't get so scared and quit. When I got in the band and saw those hundred and some upperclassmen, first thing I said was all of them did it. What make them so better than me that I can't do it too? So I, I wouldn't let anyone scare me as to talk about the exercises and all. The exercise is for you to get in shape. It's not so much to punish you. It's for you to get in shape because you're going to need to have some stamina going out there doing that halftime show. I also tell people who always ask me this, this is like the most annoying thing I hear, Christy. People would ask me, were you in the band? And I would always say the band as if it was one band. I was in all the bands. I was in the jazz band. I was in the symphonic band. What do you mean the band? They think marching band is the only thing you do. Well, that was from August to November, December. What about January through May? Well, you know, I tell people all the time, I was like, yep, I was in the marching band in the fall and symphonic band in the spring. Mm -hmm. There you go. <laughs> so that, that were you in the band thing, we had more than one band, <laughs> mm -hmm. but yeah. folks don't see it that way. And so I, we had a pep band that played at the basketball game. We call it the pep band. Yeah, we still, we, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I played in all of them. Yeah, okay. but I wanted to also say, I'm so glad that you wrote a chapter for the book. I'm so glad. Yeah, I think I spent too much time talking about my early years and what made me want to be in the band as opposed to what it takes to be in the band. I wish I could do it over, but, you know. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you were sharing your story. And, I, I, you know, I... I don't know what happened, but I would I should have asked you to be in the in the first edition as well. But both both editions are good. And I'm glad we got some, you know, Alabama State representation. Thank you so much for doing this. <laughs> You're so welcome. You have listened to the HBCU Band Experience with Christy Walker. Interviews and editing conducted by yours truly, Dr. Christy Walker. The music is District 4 by Kevin McLeod. And you can find this podcast on hbcubandexperience.podbean.com. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Take care.